As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Matthew Lizetti joins us now with Deutsche Bank. And away from your arch recession call, you led on that uh, among, I think, all of market economics. Your call for interest rates is like Richard Clare as the former vice chair writing in The Economist. No, we're not going to get back to 2%, not back to 1%. But what does our world look like with an inflation that gets back to 2.6, 3.2, that kind of level, the Clare to level? Yeah, so I think that's closer to where we expect to be by the end of this year. We have core PC around 3.5%. You know, that is a lot of progress from where we are today. Um, I would agree with Governor Waller's comments recently that over the past year, you've basically seen very little progress. And we can point to different components that have moved back and forth. But the reality is we haven't seen much progress over, over the past year. I think getting back down to 3.5% for the Fed, that matters in the context of what the labor market looks like. So if you still have a 4% or below unemployment rate, you have a Fed where the Fed funds rate is probably higher, certainly not as cutting <coughs> rates. But if that's uh, occurring within the context of a recession where the unemployment rate has risen to 45 or 5%, which is the context that we expect, is that that'll be what triggers the Fed to be cutting rates. And then to add that into your GDP call, do you have a diminished inflation, a disinflation, into a slowing real GDP level or quarter-to-quarter movement that gets us down to a new diminished nominal GDP? We do. You know, we have modestly positive growth in Q3. We have negative growth beginning in Q4 into this, the first half of next year. Sub-4% nominal GDP? It is. Uh, wow. when, you, when you add in where inflation is, we only have 0.6% growth for this year. So it is sub-4% nominal GDP. But I think really for the Fed, it's you know the context of what is happening with the labor market. I think that's been the, the key area of debate. We've seen slowing there, but I think across most of the metrics, still 4 million more job openings than unemployed individuals. The private quits rate actually ticked up recently. The Atlanta Fed wage growth tracker hasn't shown any progress in coming down. I think that's really the crux for the Fed. A lot of people lean on the projections coming from the Federal Reserve, the quarterly SCP, the summary of economic projections. There's not much daylight between your rates call and their rates call for this year. In fact, there's no daylight at all. Where is there some daylight between you and the Federal Reserve when you look at their outlook? Yeah, I, I would note, I think they've come a little bit closer to us over time. Yeah, uh, I would and, say and, that too. And, but, but at the moment, there, there is, you know, for this year, very little daylight. There is greater daylight into 2024. And they have their path, which I think is this gradual cutting path under something that looks somewhat like a soft landing, even with the unemployment rate rising by one percentage points. And they're just kind of gliding back towards neutral. Our expectation is that they have to cut more aggressively, that, that you get a recession, the unemployment rate rises. We have 225 basis points of cuts 
between Q1 and Q3 of next year. There is, you know, no doubt a gap between us uh, and where the Fed is in, in the market at the moment by the end of the year. But that gap's been diminished. You know, we're at, at a 4.6% or so Fed funds rate at the end of this year. And that seems quite reasonable to me within the context of, you know, you might have a recession beginning in Q4. Can you dovetail that idea of more aggressive rate cuts in 2024 with what we've heard from the banks just now, which was supposed to be really telling from an economic perspective, we would finally know how bad this credit crunch or credit kerfuffle or whatever you want to call it was. Now we're living in this sort of like, eh, what did we learn? We're not sure. I mean, how how much have you learned from this? Yeah, I think not much yet. Um, I th- you know, we're hearing from a lot of the larger banks, which were anticipated to be a beneficiary of some of the, the stress in the smaller and medium-sized banks. In terms of you know the Fed's uh, H4 and H8 data, we've seen decreasing stress in the Fed's balance sheet, which I think has been a positive. It's giving us some sense that we're beyond hopefully beyond the acute phase of what's been happening in the banking sector. But I think everybody's anticipating that we're still going to have this tightening of lending conditions, tightening of credit conditions that takes place that reduces growth. Mm -hmm. That is part of our baseline expectation. But at the moment, it's mostly scenario analysis. We we really can't have a great idea of how much things are going to tighten. We'll get the Fed Senior Loan Officer Survey in early May. I expect that's going to be quite negative, just given when that was occurring, kind of uh, around the peak stress that we were seeing. Going back to 2024 and your belief that the is going to cut much more aggressively. What's the threshold? What's the bar going to be for them to be more aggressive with rate cuts? Yeah, I think it's, you know, are we seeing a recession take place? You know, their forecast for the unemployment rate is that it rises up to 4.6% and stays there. You don't ever really see that in a recession. You know, these things are, are nonlinear. If it rises 50 basis points, you get a recession, it rises by at least two percentage points. And so I think if you have something that looks more like a typical recession, which is basically our forecast, you get a two percentage point rise in the unemployment rate, then I think we should expect that they will be cutting rates. I think they've been very clear they're not going to repeat the mistakes of the 1970s. The way that I would uh, kind of view the mistakes of the 1970s were that they cut the, the real rate from very positive territory to very negative real territory very quickly. Um, we don't expect them to do that this time around. They can cut rates pretty materially and still have a positive real Fed funds rate. It's so unfair of me to ask this, but is that forecast a political forecast? Do you think there's a political element to it to say 4.5 year end, 4646 4, next two years? How much, I'll phrase it differently because I know you don't want to answer this. <laughs> How much political heat would they get if they were forecasting anything higher? than 4.5% and described exactly what you think is going to play out. Yeah, I don't know if it's as, as much politics as they. there's a confidence channel from how the Fed is forecasting things. <clears throat> and so they have a different role to play than, than I do. Um, they can impact sentiment in the economy. Um, they can impact, I think, overall confidence and therefore can impact what the actual outcome for the economy is. And so I think, you know, that should be viewed within that, you know, both their inflation forecast, but also what they're showing with the unemployment rate. It's, it's notable, I think, nonetheless, that they're showing the unemployment rising as much as it has. It's notable that in the minutes, the Fed staff, you know, very clearly was, has a baseline mild recession. Um, you know, these things don't happen very often from the Fed's perspective. So I think it is a commitment in showing that they are willing to take the necessary actions to get inflation down. And Tom, it's almost Soros Popper-esque that you can shape the events you anticipate. Oh, it's almost something self-fulfilling about unemployment forecasts at the Federal Reserve. One of the best conversations I ever had was with the younger George Soros talking about Karl Popper in the early 1950s at LSE. This is economic epistemology, religion, I say, at UCLA. And the idea is you get out front and then can you reframe things as you go along? 
That's the the narratives reframing, if you will. Hey, Matt, this was smart. Always is. Matt was <clears throat> there of Deutsche Bank. I never Bank. thought we'd get there. On a forecast. Here we are. <laughs> at the Federal Reserve. Matt, thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Right now, Gerard Cassidy joins us. He's been such a friend of the show to give us perspective across these many different types of banks, not all pooled together. And Gerard, I want to start with a sentence buried in their very clear press release, which is all about Morgan Stanley, all about what you and I have witnessed over decades. In all this turmoil, down, 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 wealth management moved from a $5.9 billion uh, revenue stream to $6.6 billion. Boy, Gerard, is that talk about why everybody wants to copy Morgan Stanley? Tom, you're absolutely right. You know, the wealth management business is a more predictable, steady eddy type of business versus the more volatile institutional business that you guys have been talking about. Tom, you mentioned about how... Um, much the investment banking revenues have declined, not just for Morgan Stanley, but for the group. But wealth management, you're right, that differentiates well, uh, Morgan Stanley from his peers. And under Gorman's leadership, he's the one that drove this over the last 10 years. Jared, we've had all the big banks report now. Who won the quarter? I would say that, you know, the JP Morgan numbers probably stand out, John, as that winning the quarter. Uh, they certainly drove those numbers through that net interest revenue line. Um, certainly, they also had, um, you know, relatively decent uh, capital markets businesses. But it was all against expectations. The numbers, as you guys have pointed out, relative to a year ago, are still very weak, especially in investment banking. But I would put JP Morgan at the top of the list. We've been focusing very uh, closely on total deposits at some of the regional banks. Here in Morgan Stanley reports, first quarter total deposits below the estimate, $347.5 billion versus the estimate of $352.2 billion. Does that matter or is this basically not a question? It's a rounding error that we don't have to pay attention to, Gerard. I, I think it's I, I don't want to say we don't pay attention don't pay attention to it since we pay attention to everything but I think you're going down the right path Lisa that it's not a material uh, issue uh, deposits we have to remember that you know the Federal Reserve is implementing quantitative tightening with the intention of reducing deposits <clears throat> out of the banking system after they created over $3 trillion under QE. So the entire banking system is going to see their deposits shrink. And the real question is the mix of your deposits. And the regional banks and the big money center banks, as well as Morgan Stanley, have good core consumer deposits, which are critical. 
What's going to be the profit driver at a firm like Morgan Stanley if investment banking doesn't pick back up, if you are seeing transactions in the capital markets atrophy? Lisa, it's really the critical question for these investment banks. Uh, You know, it's out of their control, of course, in dictating how the market's going to behave in investment banking. So hopefully the first checkpoint will be monetary policy. The Fed has to stop raising rates. So if we get to that terminal rate in the second quarter, hopefully the second half of the year, you'll see a pickup in the investment banking activity because it's a a more stable landscape. Gerard, I I look at the 2013 letter of Morgan Stanley written by Mr. Uh, Gorman, and there's a subtitle, Investing in Our Businesses. How's Eaton Vance doing? How's E-Trade doing? And all the other things he pieced together here to win at wealth management and managing people's money. Tom, it's a very good point because they have not only grown organically, but inorganically through the acquisitions that you just identified. And as we know, in the asset management business, which is, of course, Eaton Vance, economies of scale are critical. And so as they built their economies of scale, including their organic growth, as well as other acquisitions in the asset management business, that has obviously helped them. On the E-Trade, it's also given them a diversity of customers. As you know, E-Trade is more of a self-directed product line versus the traditional Morgan Stanley wealth management business. So it diversifies their revenues, and you have to give Gorman credit for doing those acquisitions. Joe, just to wrap things up, just one question to you. We've asked this to investors. I'd love it from a bank analyst just to answer it. Do you see the banking events of the last month as a one-off event that we can leave behind or the beginning of a process that leads to tighter financial conditions? How does a bank analyst answer that question? I, I, you know, from the get-go, John, I was saying to myself, it was a one-off event. And the reason being is that those business models that Silicon Valley Signature had were so different. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to see somewhat tighter lending conditions, not so much because of what happened in March, as, as it might be called March Madness, it really has to do with what the outlook is for the economy. And as Jamie Dimon said on his call, you know, it's not a credit crunch. Yes, maybe there's a thumb on the scale, but banks are in the business to lend money at risk-adjusted rates of return. And if they see good risk-adjusted rates of return, they're going to lend money. So that's the real critical question. What is the outlook? Not necessarily what happened in March. Joe, thanks for being with us so much through March Madness and through April as well to break down some of these earnings. Gerard Cassidy of RBC Capital Market. Lizanne Saunders joins us now with Charles Schwab. Uh, Lizanne, the clear and present for you is factor analysis. My problem is maybe I've got five ideas or 10 ideas. Torsten Slock over at Apollo says maybe there's 20 ideas. How do you find the 21st security to own? I mean, it's just really difficult out there to do stock selection towards quality and positive free cash flow. Well, interestingly, the last couple of weeks, you you have seen a more definitive bias from a factor perspective 
toward, and this may, may seem obvious, but it's finally working its way into factors, is interest coverage. So I, I and and by the way, second to that would be um, strength of profit margins. So I think this is really a story of who can maintain profit margins yeah. in a declining, you know, nominal inflation environment, which had been a real support for pricing power. Now we're going to have to see who's actually got the pricing power and who can come uh, cover that interest. But as we've always said, you can apply factor-based screening across the spectrum of markets. Too many people think, all right, you have to start with a sector or two and then apply screening within. You you can find value characteristics or factors within stocks and areas that might be perceived as just in the growth area. What you just heard there, folks, bottle. This is off of Tushar Shande of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. A million years ago, I can't say enough about the need to go cross-sector in analysis with as within sector. This is gospel for me and Lizanne. Okay, Lizanne, I've gone cross-sectors. Let's go type 2 negative. What do I want to avoid? I think you want to avoid, to some degree, the opposite. You want to avoid the companies that are not self-funding, the zombie companies that um, don't have the EBITDA to cover interest expense, that can only fund their operations on the back of uh, additional uh, leverage. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we had, I think, close to 30% of the Russell 2000 at one point last year could be classified as zombie or pretty close to zombie companies. So I would certainly avoid those. And you do get a lift like we saw in January down the quality spectrum in the non-profitable area. But I think this is decidedly a place where you want to focus on what's dear, you know, positive earnings revisions, the the interest coverage, strength of balance sheet, high cash, low debt. The opposite represents uh, where you want to avoid. Right now, is the pain trade just higher, even among some of these zombies at a time where a lot of people point to stimulus that hasn't been fully worked out of the system yet? I think the pain trade probably is still a bit higher. If you look at institutional speculators, um, recently they did hit a pretty extreme short position in the S&P 500. That, by the way, hasn't always been a contrarian indicator. Sometimes they're sort of, you know, dead on, um, as was the case in September of 2007. But I do think some of the, the, the short-term rallies that we've seen in this market, particularly concentrated in January, did represent a lot of short covering and the pain associated with uh, that. So uh, there, there is still a decent amount of bearish positioning, and that could provide some support for the market. But I also think the market has recently gotten a little bit overbought, not to mention the fact that we've reverted back, short term anyway, to a negative correlation between bond yields and stock prices. So this recent move up in bond yields has been met, certainly on a day like today, with a little bit more weakness in the equity market. And I think that negative correlation is likely to persist, uh, maybe even uh, in a secular way. Wait, this is important, Lizanne, because a lot of people are wondering, okay, can we go back to 60-40? BlackRock Investment Institute said, please don't, uh, not yet, it isn't time. And what you just pointed to, what you just said in terms of a secular change would suggest you agree. 
So from the 60s to 90s, uh, kind of mid, mid to late 60s to the mid to late 90s, you almost the entire period on a rolling 120-day basis had a negative correlation between bond yields and stock prices because that was an era of more inflation volatility. So often when yields were going up, it was reflecting inflation having been let out of the bag again, negative for the equity market. Then fast forward to the great moderation era, as coined by uh, Larry Summers, basically the 20 plus years heading into the pandemic, almost that entire period, save for a brief period in 2008, you had a positive correlation. Because even during that era, when yields were going up, it was typically not reflecting an inflation problem, but stronger growth, positive for the equity market. I think we're going back to that environment like the 30 years prior to the great moderation, which is more inflation volatility. That is not the same thing as saying inflation is going to stay high in a secular way, but just more volatility in inflation. And for the newbies out out there who haven't been around as long as I have, it's just a different investing backdrop. It's not necessarily significantly worse. Mm-hmm. It's just different relative to the, the era of the great moderation. The era we're in, Lizanne, and Schwab is a, a, a guilty victim of this, is selling us on index funds. And we're all indexed up to our eyeballs, and we're particularly indexed up to broad indexes. Are we over-indexed, and do we have to, we have to go more specific, narrow index or dare I say even individual stock selection. So we've always espoused the benefit of having both passive strategies within a portfolio and active strategies. And as you all know, last year was a year where active had its best year relative to benchmarks since 2005. And I do think in general that the playing field is getting more level, that active has the ability to to operate relative to passive in a, in a beneficial way, unlike what we have seen in the recent you know decade or two. And I think in part that has to do with the return of the risk-free rate, the fact that when you had rates at zero and negative in other parts of the world, it it, it kind of mucked with price discovery and capital misallocation. And I think we are reconnecting fundamentals to prices. And I think that that price discovery that is allowed by the return of the um, risk-free rate Uh, I think is to the benefit of active. That does not mean sell all your passive uh, funds and, you know, become a stock picker. I I think there's still a home for both. But I think active managers um, are are just operating on a a better field right now in terms of being able to outperform benchmarks. Lizanne, a clinic from you, as always. Thanks for being with us this morning. Lizanne Saunders there of Charles Schwab on this equity market. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.
Right now, and this is a joy because Lisa and I have no idea what we're talking about. It is the guy who changed the airline business. Yes, it came over to the United States, but more than anything, Michael O'Leary is someone that the United Kingdom and all of continental Europe knows. I learned this from my daughter the first time she said, Dad, Dublin this weekend. For John Farrow, it's simple. The flight he takes is from London. Is it Luton, John? How do you pronounce that? Luton Airport. Luton Airport. Yeah. Luton and Naples. $68. I can't remember if it was Luton or Stansted. I think it was Stansted to, to Bari. That's what we used to do. Okay, there, the there it is. Why don't you bring in Mr. O'Leary since you've flown <laughs> 5,000 times on Ryanair. Michael, good morning to you. Let's talk about how business is going because in the United States, we look at some of the airlines here and things are booming. Is it the same thing, Michael, over in Europe? Ah, good morning, guys. Uh, yes, it is. It's booming and getting boomier. Uh, EasyJet uh, released uh, quite an up uh, uh, quite an up-tempo pre-results statement yesterday. I'm afraid we have our full year results at the end of uh, May, so I'm in a closed period, can't comment other than what we previously said is as we emerge out of COVID, demand uh, for air travel across Europe this year is very strong. Pricing <coughs> is rising. Uh, we're seeing the benefit of people going back traveling uh, all summer long. And there's an invasion of Europe being, I'm pleased to say, a report being taken place by Americans coming over here to play <laughs> our golf courses, visit our beaches, join in our cultural experiences. And I'm very pleased to welcome the Bloomberg New Economy Gateway Conference here to the Garden of Ireland in Wicklow this morning. Although I'm suffering from hay fever, it's not a good day to be in the Garden of Ireland. Well, Michael, I'm sorry to miss you over in Ireland. Let's pick up on Europe. Capacity. There is a frustration with travellers in the United States. When's the capacity coming back on so that we can get better airline fares and we can be a little bit more comfortable, Michael? How disciplined are you being about that? Uh, we're not. We're taking as many aircraft as we can from Boeing. Uh, this summer we're going to be operating, we plan to carry about 185 million passengers this year, which is up about 30% uh, in our pre-COVID numbers. So as soon as we can get the aircraft from Boeing, we're flying them. But overall, short-haul capacity in Europe will still be down around 5 or 10% on pre-COVID capacity. Some of the <coughs> European airlines have gone bust. The Thomas Cooks, Flybe, Alitalia, TAP have only returned at half the size they previously were. Aircraft capacity in Germany Germany, where Lufthansa is doubling prices, is only, has, is only operating at 80% of pre-COVID. So capacity is a challenge. And I think over the medium term, you know, the inability of Airbus and Boeing to deliver any meaningful increase in production means I think capacity is going to continue to be challenging for the next uh, two, three, five years. I, I look where we are, and to me, sitting on the runways, it's about a limitation of airports, whether it's continental Europe or the United States, maybe even Asia. But there just doesn't seem to be enough airports, enough, enough gates. Are you waking up every morning saying to yourself, we've got to get the underlying infrastructure rebuilt for 2030? I, no, well, a, a, I think there's a differential, Tom, between the U.S. market and in Europe. In Europe, there's many more airports available. Uh, there is a focus on three of the big hub airports, Heathrow, Paris, and Frankfurt, Maine, which have never really worked that efficiently, those hub and spoke airports. They're challenging. But there's lots of uh, other airports, second uh, city airports and secondary airports at main cities, which is essentially where Ryanair flies to. The big challenge for us in Europe is air traffic control, which continues to be a mess. 
Uh, the French air traffic controllers going on their recreational striking two, three times a week. The French use minimum <laughs> service legislation to protect the French domestic <clears throat> flights and they cancel all the overflights. Okay. We've been calling repeatedly on the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, to get do something to protect overflights. So we don't have any issue with the French going on strike, but if they're going to go on strike in France, cancel the French flights and leave the Spanish, the German and the Italian flights alone. As recreational striking takes up around Europe and frankly, probably globally, I'm curious how much that jacks up salaries and allows people to absorb some of the price increases that you've put out there for Ryanair tickets. And we've seen pretty much across the board, it is getting more expensive and people are paying it without even thinking. When does it become too much? Have you sort of tested the barriers of when people start pushing back? I don't think, Lisa, we've tested the barriers, but I mean, it's a very unusual, I find myself in a very unusual situation here in Europe. Everybody's talking all winter long about energy crisis, consumer prices, rising interest rates, yet fundamentally we're dealing with an economy across Europe where there's full employment. People are receiving their wages at the end of every month and they're spending money. I mean, I think the yeah, it feels almost like, I don't know what the 1920s were like after the Spanish flu or the First World War, but it's almost like people are determined to spend and spend on travel in particular. I think that being locked up for two years with COVID has driven people back to the beaches of Europe. People have money and they are spending it. It is very difficult to get a restaurant reservation, a hotel or a, a flight in Europe. And now Ryanair is still offering the lowest fares in every market in which we operate, which is right across Europe. But even we're seeing our fares. Last year we saw fares rise by uh, 14, 15%. We think this summer, and I'm on record as a, you know, I think it'll be maybe, we might get to double digit again, maybe 10% increase in airfares. Uh, but that's two years in a row of double digit airfare increases. So people are spending, I think we're nowhere near American level of airfares. You know, Southwest average fare last year was about 110 bucks. Our average fare last year was 44 euros. So it's still much cheaper to fly in Europe, but there's no doubt that it is not, it is getting a little bit more expensive, particularly as we move through the summer of 2023. But remember, this is the airline industry. And when things are going well, it means the next crisis is probably about four days away. Michael, or another strike. Michael, thank you for being with us today. Michael O'Leary there, the Ryanair C. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.